Dear Guevogus Valtra, Welcome to a City Reading, Cork City Library's talking newsletter of library news and features. I'm Glenn, and our readers in this episode are myself, Marion, Anne, Claire and Ed. This month, as Cork City Library's writer-in-residence term comes to an end, we bring you a special episode, featuring writings by members of the Cork Non-Fiction Group, written during workshops with our writer-in-residence, Tina Pisco. We feature... Thoughts on a Day in Spring by Jane Killingbeck Enlightenment on a River in Prague by Sarah O'Mahony Perceptions and Facts, an informal essay by Marie Guillo Saving Planet Earth by Cecily Lynch and Lockdown Lessons as I Say Goodbye by Tina Pisco Thoughts on a Day in Spring by Jane Killingbeck My heart is warmed by life arising all around me. I smile. The watery sunlight on this rare afternoon in late February, now that the relentless rain has finally stopped and the winds have lulled, reminds me that despite all the signs of imminent and potentially disastrous changes in our world, there will again this year be a resurrection and that spring will return. I wander around the piece of land of which I am the temporary protector, noticing the beginnings of life. The frog spawn that lies in the pond, the daffodils in bud, the perennial plants which have seemed all winter to be dead, now sprouting new tender leaves, the catkins on the hazel bushes, and the hellebores, oh the hellebores, the pale magnificence of their multitude of cream and mauve-tinted faces, bending their heads gracefully, perfect despite the wet mud of the bed where they grow. The garden birds fly about between the branches of the scrub willow along the hedge and the hawthorn, rowan, whitethorn and elder which I planted. The crows, the magpies and the wood pigeons inhabit the taller trees, coming down to steal the overspill from the bird table. The hens are scratching for worms with a new energy in the sodden ground beneath the bare trees. The dogs begin to lie out in the mellow air and my heart is warmed by life arising all around me. In these distressing times, we are called by the constant barrage of the media to care about all that happens in the world. Our emotions are manipulated constantly by images of dying coral reefs, forest fires, polar bears on receding ice, jungle ravaged for avocado plantations, and the knowledge that here, in our own home places, there are less fish in the rivers and seas, less birds in the woods, less insects in the summers, that trees are being cut along ancient hedgerows, diggers destroying once beautiful wild lands of gorse and byre, bogs being decimated by our need for fuel. There is a balance we need to attempt to keep, between living our lives as well as we can, with the joy in the small pleasures, in the everyday happiness, while being mindful too of the escalating disaster that is being enacted as a result of humanity's encroachment on the world, its carelessness and greed. I do my best to keep my thoughts in the present moment, not to be pulled into the traps of nostalgia for the past or despair about the future, for those ways of being are of little use. 
It is only if we as individuals can have the courage to confront our emotional responses of grief, of sorrow, of anger and frustration, of disappointment, of despair, allowing those secret feelings to well up from deep within us, where we had hoped to ignore them and weep together for our world, wail for all the creatures we have destroyed, lament the oceans full of plastic particles, mourn the trees felled, grieve for all our fellow human beings who are suffering as their lands become uninhabitable, that we can move through our emotional responses and maybe reach a place of renewed hope, of loving connection with this beautiful, sacred world, of deep compassion and connection with each other and with all beings, a feeling of being cherished as a part of the whole, of all that is good and true and beautiful. Perhaps we can begin to see with fresh eyes, with the passion of a renewed love for this world and for ourselves, and with a certain humility, allowing us to find the will and the energy to begin to effect change by the choices we make in our own lives, by paying more attention to what we buy, how we travel, what we do with our time, what we teach our children, striving to live more simply on this earth and almost certainly more happily, seeing our relationship to our world in a healthier way. For if we truly loved this world, we would surely live our lives so differently and so much more reverently. Enlightenment on a River in Prague by Sarah O'Mahony Swans on River, loud and clear in that moment, the message came. They are there to tell us to be clean. Do what we can, keep environment pure. Oh my God, I gasp, white light begins to appear. Colour radiates bright, glowing, glistening bird of flames. Contrasting black murky water. A flotilla, twelve swans. 320, 30 swans, two swans, river night. A loud, clear moment, message revealed, be pure, reveal, exist in nature. Electronic industry, dark equals unknown pollution, a call to come out of the depths, be seen, awaken from closed chamber, arise to the surface of hope. Perceptions and Facts, an informal essay by Marie Gillow. One energy, a first contact. A nuclear reactor, wow. For us French baby boomers, this field trip seemed the epitome of our youth, right before joining our respective universities. As the post-war era enabled women to access almost any field, the girls from our group felt especially empowered, with great expectations. In 1967, the research centre of Saclay, just south of Paris, was about the same age as us. It was created shortly after World War II to concentrate on the development of nuclear energy. The latter had been broadly developed during the previous decades for the best and the worst applications, all now part of the world history. Duly provided with badges, we walked slowly along a dominating mezzanine while listening to our guides and scribbling patchy notes. 
Down below, a vast area contained the hidden reactor parts. On the floor, a staff wearing white lab coats kept them constantly under scrutiny, through monitor screens and large panels with small lights flashing and changing colours. Everything seemed so organised, so clean, so unreal. Our bunch was already interested in science, but this was the closest to science fiction we had ever been. All that in the temple of a brand new type of energy, an energy that will make us independent. The country of my childhood seemed to have found its own solution, and I certainly did not question it. 2. The Irish Status Objective Realities Now living in Ireland, my interest in climate has taken a new turn. The general reluctance towards nuclear plants and their notorious reputation was one of the first realities that struck me when I moved here. Soon I was led to admit that given the size, the location and the population density of the country, there had to be other sustainable alternatives. Ireland is currently importing about 75% of its energy in the form of fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. Most of the local energy source comes from wind turbines. Indeed, we noticed, little by little, the appearance of these tall turbines outreaching the remote corners of the island. That mushrooming is not always to the taste of the local residents, a fact which emphasises that suggesting valid technologies may not be sufficient to convince people, but when our future survival is at stake, some changes have to occur. 3. The past. How did it start in Ireland? In 1880, the first public electrical lighting was installed in Dublin. Private companies were formed operating coal-fired and steam-powered stations. Twenty years later, along with some local authorities, they supplied electricity to the main cities of Ireland. In the 1920s, a young Irish engineer, Dr Thomas McLaughlin, promoted the concept of generating electricity nationwide using water as a local and sustainable source. The Shannon area was proposed for its potential hydropower, with a possible connection to the existing electricity grid of distribution from Dublin. After many debates, the new Irish Free State agreed to a contract with Siemens in 1925. Two years later, the Electricity Supply Board, ESB, was created. By 1929, the Shannon scheme was in operation through its canals, dams and hydro turbines. Between then and now in Ireland, additional power plants were built using peat, coal, gas or oil and up to eight hydro-powered stations were established. The first wind turbine was erected in 1992. 4. The future. Is the answer in the wind? Several recent Irish studies indicate the extension of wind farms could become the most efficient option, providing a local and renewable energy source, while also reducing its gas emission. Onshore wind farms are cost-effective, but the space is limited on the island. Offshore ones will have to be established too. The electricity generated on windy days may be sufficient, some days with excess, but an effective buffer storage is also essential for the continuity of the process. There would be a bonus advantage. The excess electricity could be exported. Two main hurdles could delay these installations. The initial cost will be extensive and while research is ongoing, no commercial buffer system is yet available. This is why it is so important for our nations to consume less energy and to keep following the current reduce, reuse, recycle principles in all fields, thus giving more time to the research phases and their viable applications. 5. Conclusion Saclay in Ireland is the wind blowing in the same direction. Looking up Saclay's website in 2021, I learned that the now Saclay Plateau is part of a confederation that includes the main French research centres and most of the high-profile schools of engineering and management. 
The plateau itself employs 5,000 scientists carrying out fundamental and applied research, not only in the nuclear reactors and radioactivity fields, but also on the effects of climate changes, with an international department dedicated to the latter. Their general concept for success is to involve all parties concerned in the development of new sustainable projects, from companies to individuals. The efforts needed on the scale of our planet are unavoidable. Governments and media should support each other. Keeping everyone up to date is crucial, not only on science and technologies, but also on the impacts across environment, economy, society and health. With the above elements in mind, I read the most recent status of the Irish projects, February 2021. The government has fast-tracked the development of seven offshore wind farm projects as part of its goal of significantly increasing renewable energy generation over the next decade. The government is currently aiming to have 70% of the country's energy coming from renewable sources by 2030. This looks a lot like a dream coming true, doesn't it? Too good to be true? Springtime is here. Nature is calling. I take my daily, mind-clearing walk around our rural home. On my way, I observe the two local turbines, perched on a hill three kilometres away, steady and reliable. They always tell me which way the wind is blowing. Saving Planet Earth by Cecily Lynch We live on the third rock from the star sun in an unbelievably vast universe. Although imbued with a spark of the divine intelligence, we have been developing our beautiful planet to its limit, even unto death. We are now faced with a huge problem, the destruction of planet Earth by careless exploitation of its life-giving bounty. In the following paragraphs, I will give a brief sketch of some of the degradation wrought by us, and I will suggest some possible remedies. 1. Water is essential for life. Oceans cover approximately half of planet Earth. They have been polluted by chemical waste, by plastic goods, by careless disposal of the waste products of an industrial society. Food resources, fish are a fabulous nutrition source, are failing, poisoned by the detritus of a greedy society. Our rivers crisscrossing the continents are turning brown with decay and cannot adequately fertilise the crops of rice, wheat and vegetables, essential food for the world's population. It is imperative that we stop the overuse of plastic and chemical products. 2. The ecological balance of our planet Earth has been disturbed. Insects and animals who maintain the cycle of life for us are being slowly eliminated by the overuse of weed killers, aerosol sprays and chemical waste. The very air we breathe has been polluted by the smoke of chemical and industrial factories and fumes from congested traffic. A simple solution would be to pull back on the use of these artificial products. Nature must be left alone. We must not interfere with the natural cycle of life. Biodiversity, a policy of non-destruction, is a possible solution. 3. The natural vegetation of the earth has been cut back, leaving us exposed to radiation from the sun. This results in climate change due to overheating, 
the results are drastic. The ice caps are melting, the oceans are rising. Low land areas are now prone to flooding, cities are in danger of being engulfed. Armageddon is nigh, as my local street preacher proclaims. The solution is to cease cutting down the forests and the jungles as they help to shield the earth. How can we save our precious planet, which hangs like a jewel in the darkness of space? We can all be saviours of the world by living more simply, cutting out non-essential products, by travelling less, and by being meticulous about our humble rubbish bins. Lockdown Lessons As I Say Goodbye by Tina Pisco. At our initial meeting over the phone to discuss my role as Cork City Library's first writer-in-residence in late September 2020, it was clear that COVID-19 was going to factor heavily in our planning. Schools had opened, but case numbers were starting to go up again. Our return to Level 5 restrictions until Christmas was imminent. We knew we had to be flexible, that we would have to be able to adapt. I suggested that we plan all workshops and events to be remote, in the hope that by spring we would be able to return to in-person contacts. At the start of my residency, we were back in lockdown, and though restrictions would be lifted for Christmas, it was hinted that they may have to return in January. Little did we know that the entire seven months of my residency would be carried out remotely. I think if we had known, we would have panicked. What a catastrophe. A writer-in-residence is tasked to engage with the public. How was that going to happen if the writer-in-residence was confined to a radius of 5 kilometres when she lives 35 kilometres from Cork City? In hindsight, however, lockdown during my residency could not have been more appropriate. My residency was funded by Creative Ireland, with a brief not only to engage with the public, but to specifically tailor that engagement on the subject of climate change. I would not go so far as to call it a blessing, but it certainly focused my mind on the subject at hand in a way that no research or discussions would have By forcing us to stay home, rather than travel to events and workshops, we had to learn through experience how to cut down on those habits which contribute to climate change. No matter how painful they seemed, was it worth it? You bet. In the before times, it would have been expected that the writer-in-residence would spend two days a week in the library. I did a rough estimate, and at 70km per round trip, staying at home saved me travelling a whopping 3,920km. In addition, The writer-in-residence is expected to run workshops and literary events. To give just one example, I ran a series of creative non-fiction workshops in the spring. That would be an extra 280 kilometers for me and 1,120 kilometers for the 14 participants if they only had to travel an average of 10 kilometers. Though I can't deny the joy of being physically present and the perks of attending social literary events such as launches and festivals, lockdown actually made it more possible to attend these events. I attended workshops, lectures, readings and launches in Cork, Dublin, Dingle, Galway and the UK from the comfort of my kitchen. Not only would I have missed some of them, I also would have had to travel and stay overnight. Thanks to lockdown, I was even able to attend the Kjort International Festival of Literature in Galway and the Cork World Book Festival, where I hosted an event with Conal Creedon, who was in the city, and Sarah Baum, who was in West Cork, in the same week sometimes on the same day. Thanks to a series set up by Poetry Ireland, I learned how to work Zoom and got myself a professional account. 
This has been invaluable, both on a personal and professional level. One project that I initiated would have been so much more difficult to schedule had we been meeting up in person. I reached out to Joanna Ducapati and the Many Tongues of Cork, the former group of multilingual Cork residents with the idea of creating a collaborative project on the theme of climate change. As it ended up, all of the participants were women, most with jobs and children. To schedule the regular meetings we needed to work together would have been a nightmare. Thanks to Zoom, we were able to meet in the evenings midweek and produce a multilingual, multicultural, collaborative poetry film with no travel and no hassle. With a bit of luck, we might be able to meet for the first time at the launch later this summer. Another part of my brief was to promote the library services. COVID-19 again focused me on what the library has to offer online, and what a treasure trove of resources that is. Libraries and their online platforms, courses, book borrowing, and resources are definitely an important asset in our fight to combat climate change. This virtual library advantage might not have been as evident before the pandemic. Thanks to lockdown, the important role libraries play in connecting readers, books, and communities in a sustainable way has been highlighted. I could never have anticipated how much this residency would afford me, nor how fast it would go by. I have had the time and financial security to work on a second collection of short stories, and I have enhanced my knowledge of the craft of writing, and about environmental issues in a short but intense period. I can't believe it has been seven months. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Cork City Libraries and Creative Ireland for this opportunity, as well as to the Arts Council for awarding me a personal development grant. Finally, a huge thanks to Patricia Looney, Cork City Library's Senior Executive Librarian, as well as Pauline Lucy for their stellar support in helping me make lemonade out of some pretty sad lemons. In the words of Charles Dickens, switched around, it was the worst of times, it was the best of times. That's all for now. For information, opening hours, or contact details about Cork City Libraries, visit our website at www.corkcitylibraries.ie or follow us on social media channels. Music is by Chris Toomey from his album Midnight on the Water. Thanks for listening. Slán.